Dr. Scott is well known for his studies in early modern political philosophy, especially those on writers who flourished in the 18th century. David Hume, Voltaire, Adam Smith, and most notably, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. As many of you know firsthand, Rousseau is a complex thinker with a powerful distinctive style. Dr. Scott has produced translations that capture the quality of Rousseau's writing without sacrificing accuracy. He edited Essay on the Origin of Languages, along with Rousseau's writings on music. And his edition of Rousseau's major political writings, The Two Discourses and The Social Contract, has been called superb. His translations, fluid, graceful, and as precise an English rendering as can be achieved. His introductions and notes are regarded as masterful and a model of clarity and intelligence. But let me turn to tonight's lecture. Adam Smith, we are most likely to know here at St. John's from reading The Wealth of Nations during the junior year. Fewer of us may know his theory of moral sentiments, although it is a deeply rich and even great book. We are very fortunate to hear Dr. Scott speak tonight on that book and to have the opportunity to talk with him in the question period. Please welcome Professor Scott. I come armed with the theory of moral sentiments. Um, uh, first, let me thank you very much for inviting me here. I've uh, long been a fan of St. John's. I uh, know a number of your faculty here and at Santa Fe and have met a number of the graduates, including one of my colleagues at UC Davis. I've long admired the, uh, the program here. And as a matter of fact, I first ran into it when I was a high school uh, senior. And although I did not apply to St. John's, I aspired to the model uh, it's taken me more than four years to get even close to it, so uh, I thank you very much. Thanks to Jeff Black in particular for initially inviting me. And uh, I told him when he asked me what I wanted to write, uh, to talk on, that I'd like to talk on the illustrations to Rousseau's Emile, and he informed me he talked about that last year. So I said, well, I've never read the theory of moral sentiments, maybe I'll do that. And so I'm here to report on my last couple of weeks of reading. Uh, the paper I'm going to uh, deliver tonight, which is some newly entitled Spontaneous Disorder in Adam Smith's Theory of Moral Sentiments, colon, Resentment, Injustice, and the Appeal to Providence. Uh, the first thing I need to do is acknowledge my co-author, Michelle Schwartzy. Uh, Michelle was a graduate student of mine who graduated this June. Her own dissertation was on Smith and Hume and the question of justice. And so in many ways, this paper is really her paper, and I'm piggybacking on it. But in, in that regard, I thought I'd just tell you a little bit about the origin of the paper. We have a political theory reading group at UC Davis that we are in our 15th year now uh, of doing it. And we choose a text that none of us is an expert on or maybe even read before, which is sometimes a dangerous thing to do. And uh, we decided to read Theory of Moral Sentiments when Michelle was a first-year graduate student, and she just fell in love with the book. And I also fell in love with the book. And during that reading group, I got into, involved in a running uh, debate with another of my colleagues over Smith's references to theology, providence, 
uh, teleological arguments in the theory of moral sentiments. Wondering, you know, is he sincere in bringing these arguments forward? What kind of work do they do in his work and so on? So I was long interested in these theological dimensions in Smith, much as I've been long interested in the dimensions, theological dimensions of Rousseau's thought. Um, but as I came to think about the paper, and then as Michelle and I came to think about working on the paper, we really realized that the question of justice, as Smith raises it in the theory of moral sentiments, which I'll abbreviate TMS from now on, that the question of justice in TMS was closely linked up with these issues about providence, teleology, and so on. And that's what I really hope to show you tonight, is the link between those and how they function in his work. So with that prologue, let me begin to talk. I've, um, by the way, written this out in Churchillian Psalter form. I don't know how long it is. Uh, I hope it's about the right amount of time, but it certainly won't be as eloquent as Churchill uh, were, uh, so please bear with me. Adam Smith has been long recognized as a central figure in the development of theories of spontaneous order, which came up at dinner tonight. Uh, theories of spontaneous order. That is, theories that account for the self-organizing feature of various natural or social systems where order results without the intention of the actors themselves. To quote Smith's contemporary and fellow Scotsman, Adam Ferguson, with regard to social order, quote, such order is the result of human action, but not the execution of any human design, end quote. Smith's Wealth of Nations, 1776, is noted for his theory of spontaneous order in economic markets. Of course, there's the famous metaphor of the invisible hand which bears uh, revisiting. He, he writes, by preferring the support of the domestic to that of the foreign industry, the merchant intends only his own security. And by directing that industry in such a manner as to produce, as its produce may be of the greatest value, he intends only his own gain. And he is in this, as in many other cases, led by an invisible hand to promote an end which was never part of his, no part of his intention. Nor is it always the worse for society that it was not part of it. By pursuing his own interest, he frequently promotes that of society more effectually than when he really intends to promote it." End quote. The most famous example, but not the only example, as we'll see, of Smith's use of the invisible hand. Nonetheless, despite the caricature of Adam Smith, as holding that the invisible hand alone suffices to bring about desirable economic, social, and political outcomes, scholars have recently pointed out that Smith is much more complex. And in fact, he calls on government, just to speak to that realm, he calls on government to break up monopolies, which are in fact the natural result of an unregulated market, to, provide, to prevent collusion amongst capitalists and others, and to provide universal public education to ameliorate the stupefying effects of the division of labor. So Smith is far more complex than he seems at first, or to put it in an almost Churchillian manner, the invisible hand, it seems, sometimes needs a helping hand. Smith's theory of a spontaneously ordered market is well known, but scholars have recently shown that he employs such theories in other areas of his thought, including his account of scientific investigation, language, and especially his moral theory, which I want to concentrate on tonight. In his theory of moral sentiments, which was first published in 1759, or well before the Wealth of Nations, the theory of moral sentiments, which made Smith famous, um, also includes a metaphor of the invisible hand, which I won't go into now. In this work, Smith outlines a theory of moral psychology 
based on the process of individuals mutually sympathizing with one another in order to reach a state of psychic harmony, both for themselves and in relation to one another. That is, first, initially based on, uh, on our reactions to one another, and secondly, ultimately, on how we would be judged by an imagined impartial spectator. If successful, this process produces harmony in the psychic state of individuals, as well as order in the moral and political realms, all without any intention on the part of the individuals involved. A number of scholars have therefore seen a theory of spontaneous order in Smith's moral psychology. Just to give one example, Otteson, 2002, goes on to explain in a striking way the trading of emotional and moral information in this process of mutual sympathy as a, quote, marketplace of life, akin to the marketplace in the economic realm. However, as with the invisible hand in the economic realm, we must ask to what extent Smith believes that the unaided process of moral spectation results in the virtue and happiness of individuals, as well as the overall justice and stability of society. So in this paper, Michelle and I focus on a morally and politically crucial, critical case where the process of moral spectation often fails to produce this order or harmony, again, both on the individual realm and potentially on the realm of society. That is the case of justice. Smith identifies justice as, quote, the main pillar that upholds the whole edifice of society. So justice is critical to his political and moral theory. And yet, Smith bases our motivation for justice on a psychologically discordant passion of resentment, a passion that he, quote, our terms, quote, altogether destructive of the composure and tranquility of mind which is so necessary to happiness. So ironically, the stability of society and the tranquility of the individuals is based upon this very discordant and disruptive passion of resentment. Even if an individual's desire to relieve himself of this discordant feeling leads him to uphold justice and rectify injustice and thereby unwittingly produce an ordered uh, society, nonetheless placing the motivational basis for justice on the violent sentiment of resentment already problematically makes the benefit potential benefit at least, of social concord come at the cost of individual discord. <clears throat> Yet Smith also, and worse, admits the resentment often goes unsatisfied when the injustice we witness goes unpunished, or when we ourselves are unjustly accused or unrewarded for our virtues, thus leading to further psychological disharmony and unhappiness for individuals, and if injustice is perceived as sufficiently widespread, threatening the stability of society. We don't mean to deny that Smith has a theory of spontaneous order in his moral psychology, but we do want to emphasize that it does not produce this harmony, happiness, or virtue, or order to the degree it's often characterized as doing so. <clears throat> so the spontaneous, uh, the, the, uh, the invisible hand in the, in the social and moral realm also needs a helping hand. Finally, and this is coming back to the theological issues I mentioned. Finally, discussions of spontaneous order in Smith's theory and elsewhere in his thought almost always raise the question of the theoretical grounding for this process, including whether the invisible hand uh, involves the providential gu guidance of a benevolent deity, so the invisible hand is an actual hand of God, perhaps, 
or some sort of teleological commitment by Smith. In other words, how could it be that things turn out so well all the time? Well, there must be a governing God or teleology in the process. This has been a debate among scholars. Our analysis of the problem of disorder with regard to justice explains Smith's use of occasional use of providential or teleological language in TMS, and perhaps elsewhere, but I'll focus on TMS. The use of this teleological providential uh, language by Smith comes not as his argument for the theoretical ground of the process that produces order, but rather we suggest, and I hope to show tonight, as a consolation that Smith offers in the face of the very disorder created when justice is not achieved. In other words, his appeals to teleological and providential language is a salve for us where our expectations for order and harmony are not achieved. Our analysis, or my analysis, will therefore proceed in the, uh, three stages. First, I'll examine resentment as the motivational basis for justice. I'm going to focus there on the disorderly tendencies of resentment and highlight how the problematic nature of resentment leads Smith to his first use, or extended use, of providential and teleological language. Number two, I'll turn to his account, briefly to his account of justice as the main pillar of society, as he says, and show how mo resentment motivates individuals to uphold justice and especially punish injustice. But the question of injustice then leads us to the third stage. Take up the pro I want to take up the problem of unsatisfied resentment at injustice when it's unpunished or when virtue is unrecognized. And I'll analyze there Smith's second extended appeal to providence as a way to, to provide hope, that hope in us that order will eventually be restored. Okay? So let me turn to the first part on resentment and psychic disorder. In order to appreciate the problematic character of the passion, resentment, that motivates our concern for justice, I first need to briefly outline how the process of moral expectation Smith develops in TMS otherwise tends to produce a harmonious mutual sympathy essential to human happiness and social order. So we'll see where it succeeds and then when it fails. I hope that I'm probably telling you, you think some things you already know, so I apologize if so. Sympathy for Smith is not an emotion such as pity, and he's very careful to distinguish that, uh, those two notions, but rather a more general notion that he carefully notes at the outset of his work is, quote, our fellow feeling with any passion whatever, end quote. Sympathy is central to the process whereby individuals imaginatively enter into the psychological state of one another and ultimately deem their emotional states as proper and improper and their actions based on their emotional states as meritorious or blameworthy. Ultimately, from the perspective of an imagined impartial spectator. So in other words, sympathy is not an emotion, but rather a process whereby we trade emotional and moral information, as Addison says. If successful, this process produces, quote, the most perfect harmony of sentiments and affections, end quote. Happiness for Smith is fundamentally comprised of this psychological order that results from a concord of our emotions, both in ourselves and in relation to our fellow human beings. Just as we pursue harmony essential to happiness, we also naturally see, seek to reduce 
the discord born of fear and anxiety, the great tormentors of the human breast, as Hume characterizes um, Smith, Hume Smith, whatever. I want to note uh, here uh, that the avoidance of anxiety plays a role in other domains of Smith's thought. Notably, and I'm going to come back to this a little bit later, hence bringing it in here. Notably, in his early essay on the history of astronomy, uh, which just parenthetically he kept in a drawer his entire life, it was the only paper that he had that he ordered not to be burned upon his death. Okay? Uh, and I think if you read it carefully, you might see why he kept it in his drawer. It's not quite uh, Hume's um, dialogues concerning natural religion, but it has a flavor of it. Okay? In his early essay in the history of astronomy, Smith identifies wonder that we experience when we observe disordered events as the psychological principle that spurs us to attempt to explain phenomena in a systematic ways in order to assuage this discomfort. Um, so in other words, for Smith, the spur to uh, understanding the world is anxiety. And we seek to come up with explanations that, that show order rather than disorder. And this, occasion, this essay is the occasion for Smith's first of three uses of the metaphor of the invisible hand. When he refers to the invisible hand of Jupiter, quote unquote, to which polytheists appealed to account for the irregular events of nature to which they ascribed his favor or his anger. Smith's argument here about appeals to an unseen deity to find order and meeting amidst the seemingly disordered phenomenon of nature is telling, for our analysis here, of his appeals to providence he makes in TMS when discussing this discordant resentment we feel in the face of injustice, and I'll come back to that. Despite our deep need for psychological harmony, many of the emotions we most vividly feel are inherently painful and disharmonious. So we even sympathize with disharmonious or discordant passions of ourselves and others. And a paradigmatic problem of this kind of passion is resentment. Smith describes resentment as, quote, harsh, jarring, and convulsive, end quote, and, quote, altogether destructive of that composure and tranquility of mind which is so necessary to happiness, end quote. Smith first introduces resentment in TMS by remarking on how difficult the passion is to command. He writes, the insolence and brutality of anger when we indulge its fury without check or restraint is of all objects the most detestable in our fellow human beings. Given our strong desire for sympathy and the society of our fellows, the unsocial passions, such as resentment, have a problematic place in the process of moral spectation. Since the passions we ourselves experience are more intense than a spectator can experience when sympathizing with us, Smith argues we must learn to temper the expression of our passions to a degree to which others can successfully enter into it in order to achieve the most pleasant concord of mutual sympathy. This is one of many um, musical images that Smith uses in his theory of the way that we try to tune ourselves to one another, bringing down, in this case, the pitch of our feeling so that others can uh, enter into it. So if I walk around the room yelling, I'm so hungry, you know, something like this, and none of you can enter into sympathy with my hunger, as an example. But resentment is the most, as he says, the most detestable passion. How can we sympathize with the resentment of others? It's a passion that must be controlled and brought down even more than perhaps any other passion. 
The person experiencing resentment desires the sympathy of others. But the process of sympathy with regard to the disagreeable passion, such as resentment, is fraught, both from the perspective of the person experiencing these passions and from that of the spectators. We do not immediately sympathize with the resentful person, Smith says, and we do so only after becoming acquainted with the reasons for experiencing this passion. Why are you angry? What's happened to you to make you angry? And ultimately, we judge them on whether they're properly angry in this circumstance. In fact, Smith writes, we're more likely to be exasperated against the angry man rather than the object of his wrath. We more immediately sympathize with the object of anger rather than the angry person. So the process of sympathy there is quite difficult. In sum, the very violence of resentment as a passion and its unsocial character, as Smith characterizes it, makes it difficult for the person experiencing the passion to control it so that he may gain the sympathy of others he so desires. And it's also difficult for those observing the resentful person to enter into sympathy with him, thus potentially thwarting the process of mutual sympathy essential to harmony and happiness. However, if resentment as a passion is destructive of our tranquility and therefore destructive of our happiness, potentially, Smith nonetheless argues that attempts to excise it rather than restrain it are misguided. His argument at this point leads him into his first engagement in TMS with Stoicism. I'd be happy to talk about this a little bit more in the Q&A session, but just for now, Smith writes that the Stoics' opinion concerning the government of the world by the all-ruling providence of a wise, powerful, and good God led the Stoics to suggest that we should regard every single event, even an act of injustice, as being necessary and as tending to promote the general order and happiness of the world. Part of his appeal here to the Stoics has led uh, those who have looked at his theory of spontaneous order to have a rather sanguine view of this theory of spontaneous order that we're trying to undercut here. But we suggest that whatever his debt to the Stoics with regard to the virtue of self-command, and it's there, and even to his concept of the impartial spectator, which is an interesting subject, despite his debt to the Stoics on this part, Smith concludes as follows. No, quote, no speculation of this kind, however, how deeply soever it may be rooted in the mind, could diminish our natural abhorrence for vice, end quote. In other words, according to Smith, the passion of resentment is natural and indeed necessary to motivate us to embattle injustice. To try and excise resentment would, to remove, would be to remove the motivational basis we have for fighting injustice and lead us to be impassive in the face of injustice. Resentment is not only natural, but necessary. Smith's more extended discussion of the Stoics in the version of this chapter I'm referring to in the first five editions of TMS, there were six total editions, is even more pointed. Despite offering the noblest lessons, he says, the Stoics of the Stoics, Smith concludes that there can, quote, can be no other objection to their thought except that honorable one, that they teach us to aim at perfection altogether beyond the reach of human nature, end quote. If resentment is natural and necessary but problematic from the perspective of the person experiencing it, 
What about the spectator of resentment? So, so far I've been focusing on the feeling of resentment by the person experiencing it, but what about the person observing it, apart from it being difficult to enter into? Smith develops his theory of spectatorial resentment when he discusses how we assign merit and demerit, reward and punishment to the emotional states and especially actions of other people. Resentment is the passion which prompts us to punish. Not just as the victims of injustice, which would be retaliation, which we'll return to, but as the witnesses of injustice. The resentment we experience in witnessing injustice or even seeing it on the stage and reading about it, and Smith uses many examples of reading about or seeing uh, uh, actions on the stage, embroils us in a discordant emotional state. I'm going to quote a somewhat lengthy passage on Smith from him. Our sense of the horror and dread atrocity of such conduct, the delight which we take in hearing that is properly punished, the indignation which we feel when it escapes this due retaliation, our whole sense and feeling, in short, of its ill desert, of the propriety and fitness of inflicting evil upon the person who is guilty of it, and of making him grieve in his turn, arises from the sympathetic indignation which naturally boils up in the breast of the spectator, whenever he thoroughly brings home to himself the case of the sufferer, end quote. Smith taught rhetoric, and his language here is unusually highly pitched. I think he's trying to create in the reader, or auditor in your case, the experience of the indignation boiling up in the breast of the spectator of injustice. His example here is actually reading of the crimes of a Borgia or a Nero. So even in reading, much less seeing on the stage, which is more immediate, even in reading, which is, after all, a much more mediated experience, even in reading of these things, we boil up, according to Smith, and want to punish him, right? So for Smith, this is evidence of the naturalness of this passion uh, on, the, on the behalf of a spectator, not just a, a, a sufferer of injustice. Okay? This dramatic section with this highly pitched language of, of the book, culminates with Smith's striking general statement about resentment's natural role in punishing injustice. He writes, and with regard at least to this most dreadful of all crimes, that is the murder of the innocent, nature, with a capital N, okay, and with regard at least to the most dreadful of all crimes, nature, antecedent to all reflection upon the utility of punishment, has in this manner stamped upon the human heart in the strongest and most indelible characters, an immediate and instinctive approbation of the sacred and necessary law of retaliation, end quote. Smith's personification of nature here, which happens occasionally throughout TMS uh, and might lead one to think it's a rhetorical flourish, but in this case it leads him to his first use, extended use of providential and teleological language. Smith's personification of nature here raises the issue of a potential teleological explanation for this unsocial passion of resentment, and he expands on the possibility in a lengthy footnote at the end of this discussion. So let me turn now to this footnote. Why he puts it in a footnote is an interesting question, I don't know. Okay? And this is Smith's first extended appeal to providence and teleology in TMS. Okay, so this footnote. 
aware, it seems, of the perhaps excessive approbation he accords not only to resentment, but to retaliation, especially given its condemnation by many of his philosophical and theological antecedents, Smith begins this note, this footnote, with an apology. I quote, To ascribe in this manner our natural sense of the ill-desert of human actions to a sympathy of the resentment of the sufferer may seem, to the greater part of people, to be a degradation of that sentiment, that is, of sympathy. Resentment is commonly regarded as so odious a passion that they will be apt to think it impossible that so laudable a principle as the sense of ill-desertive vice should in any respect be founded on it, end quote. While admitting that resentment is often odious, Smith argues that properly moderated resentment does not deserve approbation. So this is the beginning of his apology for it. However, he nonetheless admits that the greater part of mankind, as he says, are incapable of such moderation. The admirable self-command of the few that he points to to justify resentment, the admirable self-command of the few hardly makes up for the lack of restraint by many in justifying the existence of resentment. So Smith tries another tack by remarking on how we condemn those who show too little spirit in face of injustice. Given the prevalence of unchecked resentment, these cases are rare. The pusillanimous individual we sometimes encounter, rarely encounter in fact, Mostly we encounter angry people at the grocery store, uh, not pusillanimous ones, right? The pusillanimous interview, individual we sometimes encounter can hardly counterbalance the excessive resentment shown by the greater part of mankind. Nature still requires vindication for putting resentment in us. As though he's exhausted his supply of rationales for the existence of resentment, Smith suddenly changes tone. I quote, let it be considered, too, that the present inquiry is not concerning a matter of right, if I may say so, but concerning a matter of fact. In other words, the thematic passion of resentment is a fact that we have to deal with and understand. Of course, Smith is also making a value of it, but that's another matter. How do we understand the role of this fact of resentment in human nature? It's at this point that Smith makes his first appeal to teleological arguments in TMS. Okay? Invoking nature, capital N, or the author of nature to explain the socially na useful nature of, un of regulated resentment. Quote, Though man, therefore, be naturally endowed with a desire of the welfare and preservation of society, yet... The, which we also know not to be true, <laughs> right? The invisible hand doesn't require them caring about society. I should remember to write that down. Yet the author of nature has not entrusted it to his reason to find out that a certain application of punishments is the proper means of attaining this end, but has endowed him with an immediate and instinctive approbation of that very application which is the most proper to attain it. In other words, retaliation, punishment. Smith continues to develop so that the author of nature has not entrusted it to our reason, but implanted a principle in us. Okay? So he seems to make a teleological and providential argument here. But let's look at it more carefully. This is going to be quote number one on the handout. I did it so it's relatively lengthy, and I wanted you to be able to follow along. Sorry I didn't make enough copies. 
Smith continues to develop this far more concordant account of the discordant passion of resentment in a critical passage on the ordered economy of nature. And now the quotation. I'll read the entire quotation, but then I'll take it apart. The economy of nature, he writes, is in this respect exactly of a piece with what is upon many other occasions. With regard to all those ends which, upon account of their peculiar importance, may be regarded, if such an expression be allowable, as the favorite ends of nature. She, nature, has constantly in this manner not only endowed mankind with an appetite for the end which she proposes, but likewise with an appetite for the means by which alone this end can be brought about for their own sakes and independent of the tendency to produce it. Thus, self-preservation and the propagation of the species are the great end which nature seems, I'm going to come back to seems, to have proposed in the formation of all animals. Mankind are endowed with a desire to those ends and an aversion to the contrary, with a love of life and a dread of dissolution, with a desire of the continuance and perpetuity, perpetuity of the species, and with an aversion to the thoughts of an entire extinction. But though we are in this manner endowed with a great, very strong desire of those ends, it has not been entrusted to the slow and uncertain determinations of our reasons to find out the proper means for bringing them about. Nature has directed us to the, uh, us to the greater part of those by original immediate instincts, hunger, thirst, and the passion which unites the two sexes, the love of pleasure and the dread of pain, prompt us to apply the mean, those means for their very sakes and without any consideration of their tendency to those beneficent ends which the great director of nature intended to produce by them." End quote. Okay. So let me make three main points about this passage, and we could go into more detail, but I'll try and summarize them. First, Although Smith here uses an unusually large amount of teleological and almost providential language, nature personified, the author of nature, the great director of nature, he qualifies his usage, especially at the outside. He thus apologizes when he first personifies nature, if such an expression be allowable. And he hedges the great ends of nature seems to have proposed. The question I want to ask here is seems can be one or two things, right? Seems as in perhaps, but also seems as is apparent to. Seems to whom to have proposed? I suggest, we suggest, the observers, the observers of the phenomena. The observers of our nat these natural phenomena in human nature, in this case, who are looking for ordered explanations for the phenomena that appear to be discordantly disordered. In other words, we find a discordant passion resentment, we want to understand it in terms of order, so we impose order upon a system of which resentment seems to be so disordered. Just as Smith explains in the history of astronomy with regard to the wonder that led primitive humans to develop religiosity and appeal to the invisible hand of Jupiter. Second, despite Smith's cautious use of teleological language, what is doing all the explanatory work in his account, I suggest, are the, uh, are the ends at which our innate desires aim. He says, mankind are endowed with the desire of those ends, such as self-preservation, propagation of species, and the punishment of injustice, not because we find the means to these ends through our reason, but because our passions direct us to them. In other words, despite the language of final causes here, the efficient causes Smith adduces are sufficient for his explanation. And this will be more obvious in the second passage I'm going to look at as well. 
Third, we should recall the context of Smith's account here. It's part of an apology for the disharmonious and dangerous passion of resentment. Resentment, and especially unsatisfied resentment, can threaten social stability. So what Smith does is directs our attention away from the unsocial passion he is describing and toward its potential social utility, framing it in terms of an ordered plan of nature. He distracts us from the fact that the greater part of mankind are unable to command this passion and instead leads us to wonder at the harmonious economy of nature. The distressing anxiety we've experienced in the face of resentment, an anxiety that Smith provokes in the highly heightened uh, language he uses, is relieved through our contemplation of the ordered imagined system of nature. Smith's first use of calming language of providence is intended, we suggest, to soothe our experience of the disquieting indignation we feel at the sight of injustice. Let me turn now briefly to what Smith says about justice. In order to understand what Smith means by injustice, we first need to look at what he means by justice. Justice is a peculiar virtue for Smith. He distinguishes it from the other virtues in several ways. Most importantly, he distinguishes justice from benevolence and related virtues and argues that whereas benevolence is voluntary and cannot be required of us morally or legally, justice is mandatory. Smith greatly narrows the scope of justice compared to traditional understandings, for example, of Aristotle. Whereas for Aristotle, the most important sense of justice has to do with distributive justice, including relation to who shall rule, and can even in some sense encompass the entirety of the virtues for Aristotle, Smith restricts justice very narrowly to effectively commutative justice. With redressing harms to person and property, Such injuries, Smith says, call forth resentment. Justice relates to actions of a hurtful tendency which proceed from improper motives and which are alone approved, the approved objects of resentment or excite the sympathetic reaction of a a spectator. So according to Smith, justice is narrow, has to do with injury, and it's those injuries that bring forth, properly speaking, resentment on our part. What is required of the virtue of justice for Smith? particularly enlightening in comparison to Aristotle. He writes, quote, Mere justice is, upon most occasions, but a negative virtue, and only hinders us from hurting our neighbor. The man who barely abstains from violating either the person or the estate or the reputation of his neighbors has surely very little positive merit. He fulfills, however, all the rules of what is peculiarly called justice. We may often fulfill all the rules of justice by sitting still and doing nothing, end quote seemingly a hardly noble view of justice. It seems that a person can be termed just so long as he does not do injustice. By characterizing this as mere justice, or what is peculiarly called justice, Smith seems to admit that he's narrowing its scope considerably. This passage has puzzled readers who ask, how are we can identify what constitutes an injury? Is it conventional or legal? Is it legal historical? Is there some natural basis? And so on. These are good questions. But what we want to focus on here is that Smith's focus is not on what is in accordance with justice, but rather what do we do in the face of injustice when there's an injury that we or others experience. In the very next paragraph of this sitting in a chair uh, example, Smith reframes justice in terms of retributive action taken for injustice. He writes, 
As every man doth, so shall it be done to him, and retaliation seems to be great law which is dictated to us by nature. For Smith, it's not the golden rule, but lex talionis is nature's teaching. Smith argues our natural self-love tempts us to do injury for our own benefit. But he also argues that we restrain from doing so insofar as we've been able to adopt the perspective of others and of the impartial spectator. Right? We desire to be seen as acting in a proper way, and we eventually internalize this in terms of conscience, or Smith's own version of conscience based on the spectatorial process. But what about injustice? First, Smith acknowledges that this self-restraint and even and the remorse we feel do not always prevent injustice. Smith is not, uh, 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 what's the right word? So the problem of unsatisfied and disharmonious resentment remains. Second, and interestingly given the Smith's restriction of justice, these narrow bounds of injury, what about the case when we're either wrongfully accused of something or, more interestingly, when our own justice and other virtues go unrecognized, right? So, say we're benevolent, and no one recognizes our benevolence and praises us for our benevolence and so on. We feel, according to Smith, resentment at this, not only at being unjustly accused or being unjustly acted upon, but not having our own merits properly assessed. Okay? Think of the just man in Plato's Republic, who has a reputation for injustice and is punished even with crucifixion. The case of unrecognized virtue reveals that resentment can arise even outside the narrow bounds of justice and with regard to a more capacious understanding of justice, more reminiscent of something like Aristotle. So let me now turn to the problem of injustice and resentment and how Smith again appeals to providence. Smith must admit, who wouldn't, that injustice often goes unpunished and justice unrecognized. He gives numerous examples of this TMS, and the theme of the unjustly accused man is a recurring theme in the work that gives a tragic tinge, I would suggest, to an otherwise more harmonious picture that he gives of the progress of the moral sentiments. And again, just to put this in the large perspective, a number of other interpreters, readers of Smith, have very much focused on the harmonious concordant aspect, this is what you might call the comic aspects of Smith's theory, rather than this tragic undertow. By the way, the use of the invisible hand in TMS is, the, the, is a very tragic um, example there. Despite what he has said about the checks on injustice from our desire to win the sympathy of others and feelings of remorse that we experience when we don't listen to it, Smith frequently remarks on the injustices done intentionally. One of his main examples is the contempt of the rich for the poor in the work. And I would suggest that one of his aims in both TMS and the Wealth of Nations in relieving the condition of the poor is in order to make society more sympathetic, but that anon. And he also focuses on the injustices done by those who risk to rise in rank in society. And he writes, quote, these ambitious individuals often endeavor, therefore, not only by fraud and falsehood, the ordinary and vulgar acts of intrigue and cabal, but sometimes by perpetuation of the most enormous crimes, by murder and assassination, by rebellion and civil war, to supplant and destroy those who depose, who oppose or stand in the way of their greatness, unquote. In short, Smith admits that injustice is prevalent and even successful oftentimes. 
leaving resentment even more unsatisfied. If resentment is a spur for punishing injustice, what about the case of our desire to have justice and our other meritorious acts rewarded or at least recognized by others? Now we come to the problem of someone either unjustly accused or someone whose, just, just, whose virtue goes unrewarded and the resentment they feel. Smith's discussion of desert comes within his analysis of the source of the judgments we make concerning the merit or dismerit of other people. He locates the principle of this judgment in the same process by which we judge the conduct of others. Namely, the ascent from the perspective of the spectators of others' actions to that of the imaginatively judging our own actions as though we were a fair and impartial spectator. We internalize the spectation within ourselves, moving beyond just seeing how the reactions of other people lead us to temper and harmonize to a, a standard that we, we construct in ourselves, the, the, the impartial spectator. We acutely want our own judgments of ourselves to harmonize with the judgments of others, as well as the judgment of the impartial spectator. This is why the example of someone who know, knows that he's virtuous, knows he's innocent, is so troubling. He's in concord with the impartial spectator, but at odds with those of his fellow human beings. Okay? Smith writes, We become anxious to know how far we deserve their censure or applause. We begin from this account to examine our own passions and conduct and to consider their, how, they, how they might appear to these people by considering how we would appear to them in their situation and so on. With a nod to the ring of Gyges, or probably more Smith's sensible knave here, Smith initially claims that the individual who has, quote, broke through all these measures of conduct which can alone make him re render him agreeable to mankind, end quote, will nonetheless inevitably view himself in the light of an impartial spectator and thus feel shame and remorse and be visited by the pangs of conscience, even if his injustice were not discovered and even if he doesn't believe in an avenging God. So for Smith, the, uh, the successful uh, atheist thief still feels guilty. Even as Smith seems overly sanguine in this regard about our godless criminal, his discussion of the indignation we experience when we are falsely accused ourselves brings forth gods and demons alike. Speaking of the person who's falsely accused, he writes, his just indignation too at so very gross an injury, which however it may frequently be improper and sometimes even impossible to revenge, is itself a very painful sensation. There is no greater torment, tormentor, of the human breast than violent resentment which cannot be gratified, end quote. Apart from the feeling of resentment, our poor soul is tormented in part because his judgment of himself and that of the impartial spectator does not accord with the judgment of his fellow human beings. He fails unjustly to gain the mutual sympathy of others. The process of mutual sympathy has failed. Smith states that these instances of ungratified resentment disturb not only the tranquility of those involved, but the tranquility of mankind. How do we remedy this failure of mutual sympathy and this unsatisfied uh, resentment when we experience this injustice to ourselves or to others? Smith once again appeals to providence to restore our feelings of disorder. It's quotation number two. It's briefer. 
To persons in such unfortunate circumstances, that humble philosophy which confines his views to this life can afford perhaps but too little consolation. Religion alone can afford them any effectual comfort. She alone can tell them that it is of little importance what man may think of this conduct while the all-seeing judge of the world approves of it. We're going to ask ourselves who this all-seeing judge is in a minute. She alone can present to them the view of another world, a world of more candor, humanity, and justice than the, than the present, where their innocence is in due time to be declared and their virtue to be finally rewarded. And the same principle, which can alone strike terror into triumphant vice, affords us the only effectual consolation in his disgraced and insulted innocence, end quote. Note first that Smith never claims this belief in the afterlife and otherwise is true. However, it's comforting. This seems to be a case that Smith refers, Hume talks about as natural belief that we have in these, in these cases. In fact, this appeal that he makes to providence can be understood solely in terms of Smith's theory of moral expectation, which, after all, is what he's developing here. In this light, his remark that the, quote, same, same great principle which can alone strike terror into triumphant vice, end quote, refers not to a punishing God, but to the principle of remorse that is developed through spect the process of expectation that he earlier developed, how we imagine ourselves in the face of others. The difficulty Smith ta is tackling here is endemic to his entire theory of expectation. For as much as we wish to see one another as we truly are, and be seen as we truly are, we often fail to see one another, and even ourselves, in a proper way. It's in this context, then, that Smith makes some of his most extensive comments on the conscience, which he explains through the process of expectation, but then uses religious language to recouch it. He writes, The all-wise author, author of nature has in this manner taught man to respect the sentiments and judgments of his brethren. He's made man, if I may say so, the immediate judge of mankind, and is in this respect, as in many others, created him his own image and appointed him vice-regent upon the earth. At the same time as Smith introduces the author of nature here, he also effectively relieves a, uh, excuse me, he also effectively relieves a supposed providential deity of any role in our moral judgments. The deity supposedly has left it to us to make these judgments by the impartial spectator. Okay? Humans are taught by nature, he writes, to acknowledge the power and jurisdiction which has been conferred upon him. That is, the natural process of expectation leads us to these moral judgments without any need to appeal to a divinity. As he continues, therefore, Smith carefully replaces the author of nature with the impartial spectator in this passage. Whereas we might expect him to appeal to God as the final judgment of our actions, he does not. The impartial spectator, in fact, seems to be the, um, the final judge. Okay. Hey, let me turn to the uh, quote three on the handout now. I know I'm running short on time. He writes, and again, this person is unsatisfied. In such cases, the only effectual consolation of a humble and afflicted man leads in an appeal to a still higher tribunal, to that of the all-seeing judge of the world whose eye can never be deceived and whose judgments can never be perverted. Question, is that God or the impartial spectator? You see a substitution throughout this entire part of the work. To continue, a firm confidence in the unerring rectitude of this great tribunal before which his innocence in due time is to be declared and his virtue to be finally rewarded can alone support him under the weakness and despondency of his own mind. 
under the perturbation and astonishment of the man within the breast, whom nature has set up as in this life the great guardian not only of his innocence, but of his tranquility. Note tranquility there is the important thing. Our tranquility is what's, in, what's central to our happiness, and as tranquility is not attained without an appeal to some other tribunal. Given his elision just before the deity and the fair and partial spectator here, it's unclear, as I mentioned, whether the all-seeing judge of the world refers to God or the impartial spectator in this passage. The link between tranquility and happiness Smith consistently makes must therefore be kept in mind in reading the continuation of this passage. Briefly, quote, Our happiness in this life is thus, upon many occasions, dependent upon the humble hope an expectation of a life to come, a hope and expectation deeply rooted in human nature. Right? Our happiness is what we intend. It's rooted in our nature, and we need to find something to restore this tranquility. The natural root of belief, this belief, is the desire for tranquility and sympathetic concord, or rather the hope born of situations where we do not experience this tranquility and concord, that they will be restored, as he writes, in a world to come where exact justice will be done to every man. And in this case, Smith gives a number of examples of discordant experiences that would be made concordant in the hereafter, according to his belief. And he writes, this is, quote, a doctrine in every respect so venerable, so comfortable to the weakness, so flattering to the grandeur of human nature, that the virtuous man who must have the misfortune to doubt it cannot possibly avoid wishing more earnestly and anxiously to believe it. I wonder whether he doesn't have his friend David Hume in this mind. This longing for a higher, higher type of justice represents a desire for order and harmony on our part. That Smith claims is fundamental both to the progress of philosophy and to our natural religious belief. So in return, let me return at the very conclusion here to his essay on astronomy. In the essay on astronomy, Hume insists, quote, it is evident that the mind takes pleasure in discovering the resemblance that are discoverable betwixt different objects, uh, in, in, including in a familiar chain of events. Our mind takes pleasure in seeing a harmony and order in events. But when an unusual succession of things occurs, we are taken by wonder at the events that unfold. We search frantically for an explanation for the aberrant events we witness. But if we are unsuccessful in finding one, he writes, our whole frame is disordered. This disorder caused by wonder at irregular events is the spring of philosophy. But more importantly for our purposes, the same activating principle of wonder, anxiety, drives Smith's arguments for a providential God in TMS. The natural belief that a true exact justice exists, one is adjudicated by an all-seeing judge of the world who can't be deceived and his judgments can't be perverted, provides the only effectual consolation to individuals who suffer as a result of the pain associated with ungratified resentment and a disorder of pervasive injustice. Thank you.